Welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that aims to change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time. My name is Courtney Small. I write for several publications, including That Shelf, which this podcast is hosted on, and Cinema Access, to name a few. I'm also the co-host of the podcast Frameline. Today I'm joined by cinephile and all-around great guy Bob Turnbull. Bob used to frequently write about film on his site, Eternal Sunshine of the Logical Mind, and he also contributed frequently to Row3.com. Though Bob has taken a hiatus from writing, a brief one, I hope, his love for cinema is still as rampant as ever. I personally have fond memories of taking in a five-hour Kiyoshi Kurosawa miniseries at the Toronto International Film Festival with Bob a few years back. As do I. Yeah, and I'll say as as a side note, that held the record for, I think, the longest single screening I had ever been to for several years. And then I think about four years ago at TIFF, I took in another miniseries. I believe it was from the Czech Republic. That was like seven, seven hours, seven and a half hours. Um, Okay. I I did uh, the story of film one year, although it was over two days, and that was 15 hours. But that was, you know, chopped up into nice episodes, so that was kind of different. So, so how did they do that? Was it like six one day, or I guess seven one day? They did it in two different ways. They had five three-hour chunks across the the middle of the, I guess, the main week, and then they did Saturday and Sunday right at the end of the festival for eight hours on one day and seven on the last day. Wow! It, it was it was still great. I feel doing it. In one day, I can handle as as painful as it is for the the body, but I don't know if I would be willing to go back a second day. And I even like I have the story of film on DVD, and I think it took me like a, a week and a bit to go through because I was just I was watching it in installments and then just kind of taking a day to let it all sit in because there's so much content. Oh, for sure. I, I'm not saying that I absorbed every moment of that over 15 hours, uh, but yeah, it was it was highly enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And and one thing I also give you credit for is the amount of films that you catch at TIFF. Still, I still find very impressive because <laughs> you go high double digits. One of these days, I'm actually going to hit 50. I, I've planned for it the last I don't know five six years, and every time I'm I'm a few off. And and this year was another exception where where I missed a bunch. But next year, next year we're going for 50. So what's the the highest you've done? 48, 40 or 47? Be 49, 48 or 49. Wow. Um, I. The most I've ever heard, I think, was uh, 65 uh, by one of our, our mutual friends, Matt. Yes. Which I yeah. think is more of a challenge than, than anything else. I guess in the past I used to do like 30, 35 consistent, but with other responsibilities and having to commute into the city for TIFF and drive home, I've I've reduced that to, you know, I try and keep it about 30 during the week, a little under. That's still pretty damn good because uh, your other responsibilities do tend to take up a, a smidge of your time, that's for sure. Yes, yes, film is great, but, uh, you know, we, we still have families that we need to see at least once a week during the festival. I've shipped mine off to university, so he he is back this week, so so that's kind of nice. We just brought him back home from school for reading week. So, oh, okay. So things are good. Oh, great. Our main film that we're going to be discussing today is the 1947 classic Black Narcissus, directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, also known as The Archers. The film tells the tale of a group of nuns who were sent to open up a convent in the Himalayas, a task that proves to be more difficult than they ever imagined as the unfamiliar surroundings and inner conflict amongst the women lead some to question their faith and, in one particular case, their sanity. Bob, I know you are a big fan of this film, so do you want to just kick us off with some initial thoughts? 
I adore this film unabashedly. I, I just love it. I've seen it, I don't know, four or five times now. Uh, saw it at TIFF on the big screen. Uh, well, TIFF Lightbox, I don't know, five, six years ago. Glorious. Um, the, the first thing really is, I, I guess you could say the style of it, the look of it, the cinematography is just outstanding and amazing. Uh, in particular for 1947, the use of paintings, uh, lighting, angles, framing, it's just absolutely gorgeous. But throw on top of that this this kind of battle, uh, I guess the spirit versus the flesh, uh, there, there's a number of different ways of kind of looking at this, how repressing you know, your natural kind of feelings uh, can lead to you know <laughs> different outcomes. I think done in this melodramatic style is so much fun to watch. And kind of fascinating, too, is that it makes you mull over, you know, your own kind of view of things occasionally. Yeah, I, I love this film for a number of reasons. There's a few things, you know, in mid-40s, late-40s that you can pick at, but let's talk about the positives first. Oh, yeah, we'll definitely dive into that. And, and similar to you, I, I love this film. It's it's one of my favorites. I saw this much later in life. It's what, I guess it was one of those cinematic blind spots that I had for years and then the first time I saw it I instantly fell in love with it and it's now one of my top five favorites as you said it's gorgeous to look at I think the performances are outstanding and this is a film that essentially the women are carrying everything the men are side characters the men are the object of desire which is a, a nice change of pace especially you know coming from for a film from the 40s but similar to you the the topic of faith and the way how this film tackles the flesh versus the spiritual is really interesting. And I think that's a good jumping off point because one of the things I really found fascinating about this film is it's not just simple film about believe in God, you know, God will help come overcome adversities. It's, it's a reminder that the people who serve the Lord in the most highest religious ways are, are still human and because you're human you come with a lot of flaws that the institution doesn't necessarily help you cope with and in some ways by repressing these flaws that you have it leads to bigger problems so do you want to share some thoughts on the faith versus, versus the the flesh yeah that, that's that's a good way to put it but it's it's interesting in that i mean that's the the outward obvious part of the story but you can even pull away from the religious aspect and you know, when you talk about spiritual, it doesn't necessarily have to be religious or belief in God or anything like that. It's just how you allow your morals to kind of, you know, direct your life and what you may or may not be repressing due to other pressures, whether it's religion, whether it's society, whether it's, you know, family pressures or whatever. It's very interesting to see how people will prevent themselves from following a path or enjoying something just because they are either pressured not to think it isn't for maybe outdated reasons uh, and what can happen. And, and you know, I think it kind of gets down to is your life. It's not that long. And why would you you know prevent yourself from leading the best life possible? So I kind of like how you can pull all those different things into that very specific story that also deals with with religion, uh, particularly, I guess, in, in this case, with, you know, how the nuns go about um, bringing it out to, quote unquote, the peasants. And then that leads into another angle that, that I was sort of thinking about. I read a few reviews that have also looked at this is the failure of uh, you know British colonialism, of how they tried to go out to, you know, civilize the peasants out there. And you can make that analogy between that and some of the things this this film was showing the nuns trying to do. That is true. And that was a very interesting aspect, because as, as we're watching their spiritual spirituality being put in question, and just the various ways that their faith and their lives are 
either following similar paths or diverging. I noticed that this film starts off by painting the native population, the South Asians in this community that they go to, as being dumb, being unwashed. Sister Ruth is is blatantly racist to them, thinking that they're 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 ignorant. And we'll get to her a bit more in a, in a second. But as the film progresses, you start to realize that those people are actually living life to the fullest, right? Like, you know, they, they are now learning the ways of Christianity, but at the core, they still kind of remain the same. You know, they their life was fine. People keep coming into their community trying to change them, and those people can't cut it because these people just their, their way of being seems to to be more well-rounded and thought out than what the british ideal of their their life is and it's interesting too the the aspect of of control that i, I guess you know again colonialism and you could say religion as well will have over their their subjects so the um with the, the general basically allows the nuns invites them to come and take over his i guess it was his father's palace they used to be you know for all those concubines the house of women to have them come in and i think if you reflect on you know why would he do that part of it was i think he wants them to tame and control the population underneath him because he was paying all these peasants to go to class and to go up to the nunnery the thought that at some point it becomes a habit and then he just stops paying them and then they get reined in but like you said they're like well we'll go we'll try this out this is cool you paying me great oh it's not to my liking i'm gonna go back to my life so they they still seem to have this openness and willingness to try things and uh still do what they want and need to just the notion of of setting up a convent in what was essentially a parlor a brothel for this one powerful man because i forget the the exact term that they use but they they basically say it was as you said a, a house for his a house of a house of women you know it was a place where all the concrete concubines were stashed and judging by the size of this palace he had a lot of women back then and (laughs) the dude was busy he was very busy and the artwork all along the walls not just like you know one or two paintings like almost every wall is just images of women and people having basically the the best parties ever and to (laughs) think that they're trying to now bring in the the word of the lord into this place you know almost kind of going into satan's house and cleansing it you see the push and pull because there's a weird sense of mysticism to this film you know it's a it's a very melodramatic film but there's times where this film could easily border on horror you know just that sure yeah the way how there's a mysticism to it, the atmosphere when Dean shows up and he warns them. No, actually, I think he warns them even in their letter that, you know, the high altitude and stuff, there's a lot of strange things that occur. And you, you, you know that this building is still embodying the souls, the the spirit of the ill repute, and you And they're now having to come in and try and cleanse that. And it's only, what, five women, five nuns? That's not going to do it. I, I like your, your the word cleanse too because it's it's interesting because all the paintings, uh, some parts of the palace, uh, the the people, you know, the the peasants, they're so very colorful. And I, I don't mean that in any kind of bad way, but like their dress, the paintings, there's color all over the place. But the nuns are completely white. The the chapel and and some of the rooms are just bereft of really any kind of color or personal touch. So they are trying to almost cleanse it and get rid of you know the i'm not sure if they would see evil but they're trying to get rid of all that color all that 
life. Not necessarily that concubines are a great way to, to, to spend your life, but there's this uh, that sort of uh, the, the flesh, that, that part, the temptations. They're trying to just cleanse the building of any of that. And it feels so dapper and bereft of life when you take all of that out yeah and it, and i found also the color scheme really hits in certain parts but in terms of to I guess go along with what you're saying it had me think back to when they started to incorporate the flashbacks for sister cloda um, played by deborah kerr because once you see her in her previous life and you know her hair and the dress and she's fly fishing with the, the man she loves and just the great scenic landscapes you, you start to realize how drab th her life is now oh yeah because you know the whites and the the grays of the monastery life really kind of was almost like a wake-up call when they hit that first flashback hits it's like oh wow that's man she really did have a great life look at that scenery and then they cut back to her and you're like oh it's it's really drab in this palace now you think think how how i guess privileged her life was before too right like i said fly fishing i think she's on a fox hunt you know she has these emeralds uh and it's it's just vastly kind of different she i guess because you know her her love affair goes wrong with a guy named con which i thought was a, a nice <laughs> a nice name uh she you know tries to not give it all up but tries to hide it tries to move away from it and goes into you know the order uh and then basically the only time she's thought of it about that since then is when she goes to this new nunnery and then suddenly these feelings come back because they're whether you want to talk about um, the palace is, is is tempting her in some ways, or it's that mystical feeling around the Himalayas or the, the altitude, something suddenly, for all the nuns, they're remembering their past and their passions as well. It's such a fascinating way to, to um, expose that, because outside of, I guess, the interactions with Dean and the people, there's not, it's really the atmosphere itself. Like, there's a lot of talk of the wind, you know, and how the wind comes at night, and even later on in the film, Clota admits to Ruth that, you know, she can't change the, she can't change the wind. Like, there's nature is too powerful for them to control. And nature is the one thing that they didn't really anticipate going to this this new place. Yeah, the howling wind is, if not in every scene, certainly in, in many of them, the one, the quiet ones in the evening, there's always that howling wind in the background. Or maybe some of the, the natives drumming. Uh, there's always something there from that environment that's just kind of pushing them a little bit further, again, whether into temptation or into their memories. Yeah, I find that kind of fascinating. And, you know, we started this part of the conversation talking about the color and how for the locals you know the color is more celebratory in terms of the clothing garb and for the nuns it's the lack of color is very repressive but then we have someone like ruth who sister ruth who as the film progresses color becomes more prominent for her like you know her her eyes get a little more reddish and pink and i think one of my favorite moments in this film is when sister Ruth has gone full crazy <laughs> and she she's gone rogue gone rogue and she's announced by sister Clota thinking that there's something wrong her her room is locked so she breaks down the door and there's this kind of triumphant stance where sister Ruth is there in her red dress the color red is very prominent in this film there's that, that kind of choral chant just for a minute you know, the music comes in, and it's just—it's almost like a superhero moment for her. Uh, it's the bright red lipstick, and yep. it's yeah, very much. That. And and then that slowly leads into one of my, I think, favorite 
edits or cuts in, I think, all of cinema. Right towards the end, when they're, you're going to have this big confrontation, and there's a sort of quiet scene of Cloda, you know, on uh, outside, dark silhouette, sun is, you know, just starting to come up. And then you see her kind of framed by this arch, and the music is still fairly kind of quiet. And the camera pans a bit, and then you see the silhouette of Ruth. The music gets a little bit ominous, and then it cuts to the most amazing close-up of her eyes. Just, she is, like you said, totally gone now with her sweaty hair and the, the red in her eyes. It is amazing. Every time I see it, I just I break out into a huge grin because of how amazing that moment is. I now call it the, the Kill Bill moment because, <laughs> and obviously, you know, this film came before it, but her, the top of her dress is almost like when that first shot, it almost looks pitch black just because there's so much sweat. Yeah, yeah. Picture like Uma Thurman, you know, after she's just been put through the ringer and she's now going for revenge and she's just all disheveled, you know, and it's just, it's such a great moment. Like I think, uh, Ruth, sister Ruth and Kathleen Byron's performance, like she just has all the best moments in, in this film. It, it's, it's the best kind of melodramatic acting where it, it, it isn't necessary, uh, screaming for the rooftops kind of acting, but it's over the top, but in the, in the best way possible mixed with the music, you know, that, that cut to her close of her eyes, you get that choral music again. It's, it almost feels like the exorcist or something, right? It's got that sort mm-hmm. of that horror, religious horror kind of aspect to it. That is just a little bit not off-putting, but disturbing. And then that other cut to her just a little bit later in the doorway with, again, almost a superhero pose where she is almost all in black, at least from that angle. And the the rage has just manifested itself and she's ashen gray in the face. It's it's spectacular how they put all of this together. Yeah, the, the use of, of shadow for her is, is wonderful, but also just the the overall framing like there's a scene where dean comes to the palace and she's talking to him briefly and then sees sister cloda and quickly kind of runs away so it's almost like she's kind of going up one step and i think dean's walking away and then you have cloda who's higher up so cloda is still positioned higher on the other staircase before the two women talk and it's just it's a very interesting dynamic because the source of roofs or i guess not the source but the the thing that pushes roof off the edge is dean and he's in the middle between them and she the whole film you see her being increasingly jealous of his friendship with with Clota. she's always lurking somewhere there's always some angle or some cut where you see roof just in the frame spying you know and it's as you said it's very it's it's very ominous and let's talk about dean for a second is he's <laughs> again he he's He's kind of fascinating, but he's he's also a very oddly portrayed man in many ways. I mean, when I saw this uh, in the theater, there definitely were some people laughing at, at some moments with him. And, and I think I'd like to think that it was all in the best way possible because it is a little bit ridiculous. The image of him riding that tiny pony in his shorts and sandals. Yes, that's his introduction. Yeah, and every time he, and I think I, I talked to Kurt about this, so I, 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 I want to give him credit for the, the thought, but every time we sort of see him after that first intro, he seems to be wearing fewer and fewer clothes, except for the one time when he shows up drunk. So there's always this kind of move towards more and more of that immoral kind of thing, where the next time we see him, you know, like, he takes his hat off, and then his vest is off and his shirt is open then his shirt is wide open <laughs> there's that one scene where he shows up with no shirt whatsoever just in his shorts and sister ruth is just kind of almost gawking at him so you know it, it's definitely he is that that pull the temptation and for cloda as well although she you know represses it and holds on to it a bit more but he's he's kind of fascinating so what, what's your take on dean because at one point in the movie 
they contrast him to the holy man. They say, you know, um, the holy man and Dean are at opposite ends of the spectrum of, you know, you got to go one way or the other. Um, so what, what's your take on him and what the heck he's doing there in the first place? Well, I'll, I'll say that, that that line, that you either have to live like God or, or live like Dean, I forget the exact phrase. And that's one of my favorite lines from that film, because I think it encapsulates so much of the struggle that these women are going through. But as for Dean himself, I, I find his introduction kind of comical because when he's first introduced we only hear his voice through a letter and he's kind of like this stern man here are the here's the lay of the land here's what you're going to need to know this is going to be a tough place for you to come in you know you may not even last what have you and then he shows up on this donkey looking like a tourist who you know you're like wait this is the guy that is supposed to be the man of authority and the clothing progression i hadn't realized until you had mentioned like there's that moment where they call him and in the emergency he comes up come you know completely shirtless and it's like okay that's clearly his his thirst trap moment what have you but now thinking back it's like yeah there is a the progression of him showing a lot more skin as the film goes on and then i guess when you get to the point where he's at the pinnacle as far as they can go him shirtless and in shorts the next time you see him he's a drunken louse who can sing christian hymns and has very interesting views on on religion like i i, I kind of agree with him in terms of when he says that you know you should be able to speak jesus christ's name in in common in common terms in terms you know implying that right, right. jesus should be for everyone you know we don't need to be all dressed up to to speak his name even the prince uh there's a young prince here i think i, I figured if he was the son of the the general yeah, yeah, the young general. I think says the same thing where where he's talking about Jesus Christ and Clotus says we don't usually talk that in like in those kind of informal terms about him. And I forget exactly his line as a comeback, but basically, you know, he's basically saying, well, well, you should because he's you know kind of this gift to everybody. Why would you not embrace him in your conversations if that is your belief? Uh, and you know, he's uh, the young prince is desirous of education from the nuns, and actually they're they're kind of unwilling to give it to him. And I think that's what you know, has him start the conversation of like, well, what, what would Jesus do in this case? He'd, he'd want to educate people. So it's very interesting, that kind of different view of what the nuns are doing than the nuns' own view of what they're trying to do. Yeah, I, I felt that Dean was the check and balance that the institution of the church needs because he frequently calls them. Like when Angu Aya sh shows up, no, sorry, was it Ken Kenchi? When Kenchi shows up and he drops her off at the palace and is basically like, yeah, this... 17 year old girl needs to get married and she appears at my door every day all dolled up it's not happening you know she's just yet another woman coming after me <laughs> you guys do something with her teacher and they're like we don't want her he's like but isn't this your job like he's always they're always saying well we can't we can't have these amount of people he's like but it's your job to bring people in you know we can't speak of the lord in common but it, you should be right like how can you be representing a higher power and supposed to be sharing this power with the masses and then have so many strict rules that the masses will never truly get access to, right? He kind of calls them on their clout. And I, I find he's such a fascinating character because he looks like he should be a bumbling idiot at certain points. Then there's times where, as we've said, he's just the object of physical desire. And then he's the genuine good guy <laughs> he you know he wants to listen he wants to help even though he's clearly in interested in cloda and occasionally will use a lot of sexual innuendos like when he shows up to uh to handle the plumbing and he tells oh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm just interested in the pipes you're just like huh he's just he's rife with the innuendo yeah he's he's, he's a really well-rounded and, and complex character so by the end you like him and you respect him 
you know, he doesn't take advantage of the women, and you could, you get the sense that if the circumstances were different, he would probably make a move on Clota, but he has enough respect for her and her position to be respectful when when they interact. I have to say, my favorite line from the movie is, I, I guess it's late on, when he, he has to rush up to the palace, and he says, my pony! quick yeah. <laughs> and again it's just such kind of a ridiculous line but it fits the the tone of everything just being arced you know very high and i i laughed out loud but again was purely engaged in the movie i was definitely not laughing at it but absolutely i think with it whether or not they intended all that i i, I can't say but it it worked for me every moment yeah and I, one thing i'll say is that his introduction i find is an interesting juxtaposition to roof's introduction because we hear his voice first then we see him on the donkey so he's completely not what we expect with Ruth we are just told that she is ill her introduction is an empty chair oh right and then when you first see her and stuff she's kind of snobbish shall we say and blatantly racist and then when she meets Dean for the first time she's got blood all over her right like almost like as if she's been she's already got the scarlet letter on her she just doesn't realize it yet type of thing so it's just very interesting how the all these characters are introduced because when we meet Clodagh we meet her she's teaching a class you know she's the doing her job she's the one that you think will have it all together and everyone kind of ends up not being quite as they are initially shown to be it's interesting too though when early on when she gets the assignment to the the, the himalayas from uh, i guess the mother superior you can see this brief sort of flash of i got it i'm going to be the youngest superior like it's there's that moment of pride, which, you know, as a nun, in theory, I guess you, you really shouldn't have. But she has one of those earthly, not not, not temptations, but almost like, a, I guess, a sin, right? She, she shows pride in being announced that way. And as the movie goes on, like, she's always determined to push the work forward and keep things going because she can't look bad. She doesn't want to have to go back to Mother Superior and show that she failed. But she knows the Mother Superior doesn't think she should get this assignment. So even Cloda, you know, has, you know, up front that oh, there, there's a, a little bit there. Right. Then there's the, I guess, the other three sisters. I mean, we can talk about them. There's, was it Philippa who mans the garden? Brioni, who's there for strength? Yeah, the, the muscle. Yeah, the muscle. <laughs> and Honey, who is the, the pleasant one who gets along with everybody and I guess really cares about the kids. So it's interesting how their arcs go as well. I mean, so Bryony's the one that I, I'm not sure I saw that arc, whereas Philippa and Honey definitely have those moments too of being going back to their temptations uh, with Philippa stopping to just garden potatoes and then bring flowers and the nature and life back to the place and honey being really caught up with the kids which could indicate that you know maybe motherhood is something that she wants to get into an aspect is coming further out that has also been repressed with both of them like when honey tries to save the child and has consequences for all of them you get the true sense that she is not going to be like cloda or the others in terms of the job is the job sometimes you have to be cold because the job demands you to be cold like it's just not in her. I think the reason why she's so popular amongst the nuns is because she is that warm body that there's not too many of in that institution. And even with Philippa and the whole, we were expecting potatoes and all we've got a whole bunch of flowers, it changes her. She has, I think she requests to be transferred. She almost wants to, to go back and repress that even further. I, I need to go back to my studying ways and, you know, as if mm -hmm. you know, it's locked in a room type of thing. So it's interesting to see that she wants to repress that even further. Yeah, and even with Clota constantly giving them work like the mantra is as long as you're working you're not thinking about stuff and if you're thinking about stuff then that's when all the bad thoughts come in her whole notion for becoming a nun is to simply repress thoughts 
Bronny's the, the one I'm still not quite sure of in terms of the greater significance because they all, everyone else seems to really be repressing certain things whereas Bronny just seems to be the observer who doesn't really get to evolve much because she's seen as the muscle. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect too because she does seem colder than the others and I guess, I'm not sure if it would be fair to say more manly in some ways. So, you know, that that's the flip side of the movie of like, you know, this is the late 40s. Are they actually saying that, oh, well, you know, the women, you know, they, they can't handle these things and got these hysterics and these different emotions. That's potentially one reading of it, but I, I liked more your earlier point about how everything is seen, especially in the late 40s, through the, the woman's eyes, and you don't see that too much. And it's not that it's hysterical or emotional. It's just that it's more open, trying to repress it, but they realize that there are these other things calling them. Like Philippa, I think, at one point says, you know, she'd been in the order for 21 years and hadn't thought about her past until she came there and said, and one of the reasons is, well, here you can see too far, you know, meaning, you know, too far into the distance, but also being able to see such a broad perspective. And I think that's an interesting take on this is that the film kind of saying from a female perspective, they typically be open to a broader part of life, whereas the male perspective might be kind of like, this is the way you do it. And you fork through. Yeah, definitely. And then this is a film where because of the air that it's made in, women are being repressed daily anyway. And it's, it's kind of nice to get a film that speaks to it and speaks to it in a way that I'm sure a lot of studio heads weren't expecting. You know, they probably forget, oh, well, it's a story about nuns what have you craziness women losing their mind but a blockbuster yeah yeah but the, but you actually get these women bringing rich layers to it because it's like yes we know what it feels like to to be repressed in a daily society being told we have to be a certain way even if we don't agree with it or if we don't feel that way and it makes me think of i guess the opposite end of the spectrum in this film from a female perspective is Kanji, played by Gene Simmons, mm -hmm. because she gets to be the young ingenue in many ways. You know, she gets to kind of openly use her sexuality to be a little wilder than any of the other female characters in this film. And, you know, I, I have some issues with Gene Simmons playing the role because considering they had so many South Asian extras, I was like, hey, you couldn't have found a South Asian actor to play the role, especially since you have Sabu playing the young general. But I, I understand it's the 40s, you know, Diversity was not a, a big point in their their film casting. Yeah, because Gene Simmons is is gorgeous, uh, and she's fine in the role, but she doesn't, I don't think she has a spoken line, does she? I think just some screaming at one point, and she has a little dance scene and so forth, but regardless, there's not a lot of dialogue, so there isn't any major reason why they couldn't have had another extra. I mean, maybe it was hard to find somebody to do the dancing and so forth, but yeah, I don't want to make any excuses for it. Yeah, it was the 40s, that's the way it was, uh, and I could still enjoy the film, but that does stand out as a, especially there was one, I think, close-up shot of Gene Simmons where it's really obvious that, you know, she's had her skin darkened and it's, yeah, it's uncomfortable, I guess, <laughs> to certain, and you can't excuse it, but it is what it is and you have to deal with it. I, I still love Gene Simmons, but yeah, I think there may have been some better choices for that particular role. This is not to discredit her performance because I do like her in the film. She does great with the physical attributes in terms of the way how she uses her body to lure the young general's eye and there's that great shot where she is eyeing him in the mirror and then the camera kind of moves slightly over in the mirror so you kind of see the reflection of him trying to you know tilt his head to look back at her there's like a lot of interesting flirtation i think she utilizes the camera very well in terms of just kind of hitting those marks i'll, I'll give her that it just it was just one of those things that watching it again now and just looking at the cast and the amount of extras I was like you probably could have just 
gotten someone else to play it because as you said she doesn't have that many lines in the, the film like I'm still trying to think back to a line of dialogue that she has and even when the the young general saves her from from being whipped I don't think she she says anything even in that scene I think it's just all screaming and rolling around until she looks up at him and he and he saves her yeah but she uh, she wears the hell out of that nose jewelry though that looks just great on her and and one thing I sorry I'm gonna divert just slightly because it just reminded me when we were talking about Dean one thing I also noticed is that the bell that they use outside of just being the source of some really wonderful shots the bell on the very top edge of the cliff that bell has several different uses and at least half of them are related to Dean. So there's the the scene where the child is sick and they really need help. So Clodo rings the bell, looking down, calling Dean. But there's also that moment before where S- Sister Ruth is, you know, having to ring the bell at a certain time. And she looks down and you clearly get the sense that she's thinking of Dean as she's looking down. And then she kind of has this sly smile on her face as she starts ringing the bell and kind of looking down. And, and ringing the bell, you realize that she's not ringing it for a higher power above. She's she's thinking about him, and I found that kind of interesting as well. How in many ways he kind of becomes part of the place. Yeah, because I, I think it's early on where the, I think the bell is rung at like six a.m. kind of on the nose, and he, he makes that point. And I, I can't remember if Ruth is actually in the room when he says it. Of like, wow, boy, they they really stick to their time. So it seems almost like when she's ringing it, like you said, and she's looking down, she's like, hey, remember me? I, I'm on time. I'm on time. This is for you, Dean. And I, I also found it, and I, I know it's convenient for the story aspect, but when Ruth finally, you know, lets her inner self out, and they have that great scene with the the lipstick and the waiting game, where she outweights Clota and Clota falls asleep and she takes off. She's navigating the woods, you know, similar to Snow White when Snow White's first in the woods and all the sounds are kind of scary, but she makes her way to dean's house i don't know how she does it but she gets right into dean's place and she doesn't get the response she's quite looking for she's definitely rebuffed yeah yeah rebuffed and she starts doing the saint clota's name and the rage is building and powell and pressburger do that great thing where they start to raise the the red color oh yeah when she uh... yeah the entire screen is eventually filled has this red filter over it before she passes out and i also thought that was just a really innovative way of showing inner emotion yeah that that's the moment where i mean she's already kind of lost it so to speak but that's where the rage gets the best of her and there was no going back after that yeah this film does a, a really good job of letting you know what people are feeling without having to say much there's that great moment where ruth and Clodagh are talking and the camera kind of focuses on Clodagh's fingers as she's I guess rolling a, a pencil and you see that she's got one nail that looks like it's kind of manicured and the other nail that looks like it's been trimmed and I thought that was kind of an interesting balance considering that you have these two women that are you know the light in the dark in many ways it seemed to be kind of like no she still is keeping part of her you know quote-unquote femininity that outward femininity and whether it's for Dean or for herself it's not obvious but you know there's there's a reason why they zoomed in on that the show that yeah that's that's still there and i do like the fact that these characters are kind of complex right even dean when ruth is down at his his pad his apartment whatever you want to call it and she says ah you you love me screams at her i don't love anyone like he doesn't even really love himself right i mean and that's tying back into the whole sort of i guess you could say the theme the the title of the movie you know black narcissist is actually uh, named after a i think a, a perfume a scent from the early 1900s and i think uh rumor god the the author of the the book that this 
came from, wrote it with that title in mind from the perfume. But, you know, narcissism is all about the self, right? So he can't even love himself. So he's very flawed on, on that side. And then you tie back to the prince, who really is all about this outward look at me and look at my dress and my beautiful jewels. And when he comes with that scent on him, I think Ruth says something like, I hate any scent. And he says, but but isn't it rather common to smell of ourselves? Or I, I think that's the line. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting, right, to bring that whole thing back to yourself. So he's a little bit more narcissistic from that point of view. It's just interesting, all that intertwining of those different themes and the repression and the temptation. It's such a great movie. It's funny because I think around that point when he start, he makes that reference about um, smelling of oneself, you start to slowly, I guess at that point, you, you're starting to already see a, a change in the prince. Like he's kind of buying into what the, the nuns are selling, but he also is becoming more smitten with, with Kenji. So he's one of the few that actually is thinking about others in, in a way that's not... Well, I guess, no, sorry, because thinking back, it's still to his benefit because he's getting... He, he still runs away with Kanji, so I guess it, it still is to his benefit. He falls to that, I guess, temptation, right? Because uh, w- w- with the one story they quoted a, a couple of times, the uh, the prince and the beggar woman. Oh, yeah. Basically, you know, he was tempted by the flesh, uh, and at the end he says that he's going to go back and, and be the kind of prince that you're supposed to be, and tough and strong and, you know, leading battles and all this. And it's, I guess, left up to the viewer if you think that's a good thing but it's interesting that he then chooses the this is what is expected of me and i will try and push down these these other feelings whether you know kanji tempted him for the wrong reasons or not he's trying to then still repress that piece and get back to being the prince that he's expected to be the one thing i didn't get or i was wondering about so he runs off with kanji and he comes back but we never actually know what happens to her no because they don't mention if he realized that you know she wasn't the right one or if she's still with him but he's now just going to be a tougher person she's just that kind of temptress that finally gets her man and she's just kind of written out of the film. And say, I don't know the, the story of the, the prince and the beggar woman, whether it's, you know, if that has more to it, if there's something that does, you know, theoretically happen to her, or mm-hmm. if it's just that evil temptress that, you know, pulls him off the path and he has to find his way back. And it's just one of the many examples of that in the film. It is interesting, though. Yeah, she's kind of left as a, we're not going to worry about that story. In the way how this film ends, you've got that great shot of Clodagh looking back she only gets a quick glimpse of the castle because the fog rolls in and, and covers it you know again the the clouds you got that whole mysticism and then it ends with rain coming down as they're leaving you know the yeah yep. the sinful place has now been blocked away and mother nature shall i guess cleanse you again because there's a lot of cleansing in this film <laughs> as they go back hat in hand to to where they came from and try and re- rebuild again and you know part of me still wishes that she got off the, the mule and just went with Dean somewhere but you know that's not her style that's not who Clota is even though I think she would probably been much happier than going back that, that would have been a heck of a last moment if she rips off her nun outfit and lets her red hair flow and <laughs> <laughs> and go down the mountain on the donkey together yeah, but I mean, especially after what happened with Ruth, you, you can't. No. <laughs> even though I want that, you can't have that. This woman died because of temptation, but this woman, she's okay. She's totally fine. What is, is interesting to me is Dean, I think, says at the start of the movie that for the nunnery, says, yeah, I, I give you till the rains break. And at the end, you know, she's saying, well, the rains haven't even started. So, you know, they, they didn't even make it to the rains breaking. And then, boom, the rains fall. And then that even obscures them as they're they're kind of going off the mountain, too. So, yeah, I like the idea of Mother Nature kind of just taking charge and saying, yeah, don't, don't be toying with me. I, I love Powell and Pressburg, particularly Michael Powell, because he did Keeping Tom years later, which I adore. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's another great one. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say, just because you had mentioned that 
chapel scene. What also struck me about that chapel scene towards the end is they've got the chapel bathed in like a reddish-orange hue. It's almost like the sky is ablaze. Definitely deserving of all the accolades and awards that it got from, from that point of view. The look of this film is, is gorgeous. Jack Cardiff is, uh, is an amazing cinematographer. Uh, and it's interesting, too, where this falls in Palin Pressburger's uh, set of films. It was right after, I think, A Matter of Life and Death and right before Red Shoes, which, which you know, those two are tops for me for Palin Pressburger. Black Narcissus and Red Shoes are incredible, just gorgeous, vibrant, very melodramatic films. To me, that's, I think, their peak. I like a lot of their films, but that's, to me, where they, the 46, 47, 48 is, is where they, they peaked out. Yeah, this is my favorite of theirs. I, I love the Red Shoes as well, but if I had to rank them, I'd put this number number one, personally. This is a film that I still would hold this film up against any modern film. You can show in any era, and it still resonates. And that's that's something. That's a testament to, to just genius filmmaking. I am absolute agreement with you, sir. All right, Bob. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, where can listeners find you online? My Twitter handle is at the logical mind. And this is you can find me on Twitter at small mind, or you can contact the show on Twitter at changing reels AC. And remember, you can change the conversation on diversity and representation in cinema one reel at a time.